Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading today can be found on page 1060 in the Church Bibles. It's taken from Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. And Pilate has just released Jesus to the Romans. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things.
This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let me pray for us. Our loving Heavenly Father, we've sung of endless glory shining from your word. May it shine brightly this morning, Lord, so brightly that it enters into the very darkest corners of our life and result in your praise and glory. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, let me encourage you to turn back in uh, your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, uh, the reading uh, that Ian read for us just now. We've been looking through Luke's gospel, uh, or at least uh, parts of it, uh, to coincide with our Passion for Life um, series, and particularly the things you're looking at in small groups, and particularly preparing us to think about how we might uh, read Luke's gospel with our friends. Uh, There aren't many decisions that we make that are so momentous that they affect the rest of our lives. Some things we are told are that important, but they're really not. Uh, At school, our children feel the pressure that if they don't work, they'll have no future. Whether teachers and parents actually say that or not, that's the impression that they're sometimes left with. Well, I didn't work hard at school and look at me. So let that be a warning to your children. Uh, Seriously, this week, why six children were informed of the secondary school place that they've been offered, why nine children have had to choose their GCSE options, and while these are big decisions, it's simply not true that the rest of their lives depend on them. And there aren't many decisions in life that are that momentous. Who you marry and having children, now those are decisions that affect the rest of your life, but there aren't many decisions like that. However, today we look at one event in history that really is that significant. As we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we're thinking about the most significant event in the history of the world, so significant that we will continue to think about it for eternity. And so our response to that one event changes everything forever, for it determines our destiny for eternity. We see just how significant it is when we look at the words Jesus said on the way to the cross. See, as verse 26, Jesus was led away to be crucified, and as Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the wooden crossbeam that would be used to hang Jesus out to dry, so, verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And just listen to Jesus' reaction to those wailing women. Look at it in verse 28. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is pointing to a time in the future of excruciating agony. A time that would be so painful that women will wish they had never given birth and subjected their children to that agony. Jesus points to a time when death would be preferable to life. Do you see it there in verse 30? People will be begging the mountains to fall on them, begging to be crushed by a mighty earthquake rather than carry on as they are. For you see, in leading the Christ out to be crucified, the human race was bringing upon itself the most terrible judgment. As Jesus walks the path of execution, at the most basic level, we see what a topsy-turvy world we live in. Back in verse 18, the crowd called for Jesus, an innocent man, to be killed. And in his place, they wanted a terrorist to be freed. 
When humanity kicks against basic justice, we see just how depraved we are as a race. And it spells a bleak future. So Jesus said in verse 31, for if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now, it's an unusual saying. It's a difficult saying. Lots of people say all sorts of things, different things about what it actually means. But I've been really helped by this explanation by somebody called David Gooding. He writes, long quote, but here it goes. If citizens living in a reasonably civilised society under a fairly stable and reasonably just government can overrule the government and insist on the execution of an innocent man, not to mention the fact that he was God's son and their Messiah, if priests in a nationally recognised religion which stands for divine law, morality and ethical behaviour can use lies to pressurise the civil power to commit judicial murder, what kind of behaviour will prevail in a society that's lost all respect for justice, law, morality, religion and God? It may take a long while to turn a green tree into a dried up trunk, a paradise into a desert, but bleed the moral life sap of a nation and the result, however long delayed, is inevitable. Those are frightening words, for we, like the people of Jesus' day, also live in a reasonably civilised and stable society, as David Gooding describes it. And yet our government has made decisions recently that are fundamentally contrary to God's law. And some of those who rule us have been exposed as immoral and lawless people. Just think um, this week how many people have been left outraged over alleged injustice and corruption in the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation from 20 years ago. And in recent years, many religious leaders in this nation have been caught completely disregarding God's law and abusing some of the most vulnerable in society. It seems that this green and pleasant land that we live in could well be on the way to becoming a dried up stump of a nation. You see, at the most basic level, in this moment, the people of Israel were completely ignoring what they knew to be right. They had an innocent man killed and in his place they released a violent insurrectionist. And under God's law, betraying a righteous man puts you under the judgment of God. But of course, so much more was going on here. They were not just putting to death an innocent man, they were killing the Messiah, the Son of Man, the King of the Jews. This is what happens when God comes to earth. We kill him. This is what we do with the one true gracious God who came to seek and save the lost. And of course that's the point. If you reject the very one who comes to save you, then you reject the only means of rescue. It's like drowning in a sea and not only refusing to get into the helicopter that has come to rescue you, but then shooting it down. Reject the only form of rescue available and you are doomed. And that is a decision that affects your future forever. In that sense, the very worst thing that anyone can do, the very worst thing that this nation can do, it has been doing for many years. We live in a nation that has turned its back on Jesus Christ. I don't have a romantic view of the past. I don't think that England was ever truly Christian. But when you next go on a long journey in this country, on the train or in a car... Look out of the window, cast your eye across the countryside and you'll see how this land is punctuated by the spires and towers of village churches. We may never have been a truly Christian nation, but as a nation, if we were anything, we were Christian. 
Imagine us developing as a nation now. Imagine us building from scratch today. Would church buildings be erected in every community? Not on your life. We have rejected our God. And we've done it as a nation when, verse 31, the tree was green. When we knew the truth and had access to the truth in every community in this land. How terrifying it is then to contemplate what will become of us as a nation as the residue of Christian truth is eroded from the fabric of society. Not that all this should be a surprise to us. In the verses that follow, we see the entire human race rejects Jesus. In verses 32 to 34, Luke describes the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. And then listen to the responses from those around the cross. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a a, a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. See, there are three groups of people. Uh, Verse 35, the crowd and their rulers. Verse 36, the soldiers. Verse 39, one of the criminals. And in those three groups, we have the whole world represented. Jew and Gentile, leaders and people, professional and labourers, religious and not, moral and immoral, upright citizen and convict. Everyone is represented here and all respond in the same way towards Jesus. End of verse 35, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Second half of verse 39, aren't you the Christ, save yourself and us. Now the similarity and almost identical responses from each group is not meant to be lost on us. Each group is saying the same thing. Each group questions Jesus' identity, if you are the Christ, and his ability to save us. Each group is saying, you're not the Christ, you're not the king, you're not the saviour of the world. Each group is rejecting Jesus by sneering, mocking and insulting, saying, you're not able even to save yourself, so how can you claim to be able to save us? So in these responses, we see that everyone rejects the Christ. Everyone, even the religious, even the respectable and apparently moral Indeed, let me stop here for a moment, because this is one area where we do need to get our thinking clear. Again and again, as I look at people living around me, I find myself thinking they're good people, that they're nice and moral and upright citizens. But you see, as I think that, and I do think that all the time, as I think that, I need to pinch myself and ask, what is nice and moral and upright about not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus Christ? He is the one who gives us life and every good thing we have. The one who loves us and who goes to such extreme lengths to save us. So we keep looking at people, I do anyway, and I keep thinking they're good people. Luke is saying, all of us, we are not good people. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost and we hold him up and string him up and hang him out to dry. And so Luke is saying, we deserve only the judgment of God. And we must include ourselves here. 
please don't sit here and think that you'd have reacted any differently were you in the crowd that day. The singer-songwriter Nathan Tasker got it right when he wrote these words. I'd like to think if I was there as the crowd demanded crucify, I'd have been a louder voice calling out what is his crime? But in truth I can see that although I stand here now, a part of me was there in the rabble when the crime was declared and I cried for your blood. And I'm sorry I left you to the mocking and scorn. And but for the grace of God, I hear my angry voice. Well put. And then there's the words of Stuart Townend, uh, those great words from how deep the Father's love for us that we sing so often. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. See, had we been there that day, we'd have joined in with the crowd. And that tells us we reject God and we deserve his judgment, all of us. But of course, that's not the end of the story. For here, at the scene of mankind's lowest moment, as the human race attempts to dispose of God, there is a wonderful good news. And we need the good news that we need not face the judgment of God. And then we see it in the most unlikely place. While everyone around the cross rejects Jesus, there is one that doesn't, just one. Let me read from verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same same sentence. We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Luke calls him the other criminal. We don't even know his name. But he's highlighted here to show us how we should respond to Jesus. And to tell us that the judgment need not come upon us. For do you see in verse 43, Jesus promised this man, the the other criminal, he promised him life beyond the grave in the presence of God in paradise. Look at the other criminal as Jesus calls him and see the right response. A right response that will enable us to avoid the judgment of God. You see, the second criminal is so different, not only from the first criminal, but from all the others around the cross. First, verse 40, he feared God. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? And you see, we are all under the same sentence, the sentence of death. And that sentence should make us fear God. Death will come, and when it does, we will come face to face with our God. And we're not ready to meet him. And so the inevitability of death should be a wake-up call for us to fear God. But it is remarkable how we not only go through most of our life ignoring death, refusing to talk about death, and never really facing up to death, but even as it gets close, we pretend it's not going to happen. On the 24th of June, 1982, a Boeing 747, flight number BA009, flew into a cloud of volcanic ash thrown up by the eruption of Mount Galangung, southeast of Jakarta, Indonesia. It resulted in the failure of all four engines. 
And as the engines flamed out, as they say, and the flight crew immediately performed the engine shutdown drill, quickly cutting off fuel supply and arming the the fire extinguishers, the aircraft was able to glide far enough to exit the ash cloud and then, amazingly, to start all the engines again. One of them later failed, but remarkably, they did land the plane. But as the drama was unfolding, the situation seemed so bleak that many passengers, fearing for their lives, wrote notes to relatives. One passenger, Charles Capewell, scrawled on the cover of his ticket wallet, Ma, in trouble, plane going down, we'll do best for boys, we love you, sorry, Pa. They really thought they were going to die. But the story is told of one boy who looked out of the window and saw one of the engines glowing bright red and said to his dad, Dad, the engine's on fire. And his dad said, well, you better pull the the window blind down and pretend it's not happening. Unbelievable. And yet it's not unbelievable. Because it's what we all do all the time. We're going to die, but we pretend it's not happening. And even when we know it's happening, when we're diagnosed with a terminal illness and when the medics tell us there's nothing else they can do for us, some still refuse to do, verse 40, to fear God. I've sat with people who are dying. I've asked them, are you ready to meet your maker? And they have politely refused to engage with that question. They don't want to think about it. Metaphorically, they pull the window blind down and pretend it's not happening. So the criminal here is an example to us. He knew he was going to die. He was being executed on a cross. And he knew he was going to meet his maker. And he feared God. The second, he was honest about himself. Verse 41, uh, he said to the, the other criminal, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. See, he knew he was a sinner. He knew he deserved his punishment. He admitted responsibility for his own actions. Now that's something we find very hard to do. I see it in myself. When I get irritated and grumpy, which is more often than it should be, in fact it's very often, it's always someone else's fault. Something they've done or said. In society at large we play the blame game. Popular psychology hasn't helped. Rather than acknowledge that I'm responsible for my actions, I'm encouraged to see that I'm a victim. I'm a victim of my circumstances, of my upbringing, of my poor starting life, of my education, whatever it is. It's rarely my fault that that I'm not the person I should be. Now, of course, there's often some truth in these things. But if I'm going to be ready to meet my maker, I've got to hold my hands up and say, like the criminal here, I've got to say, verse 41, it's right that I'm punished. I'm only getting what my deeds deserve. He feared God, he was honest about himself and then he knew that Jesus was innocent. End of verse 41. Do you see it there? This man has done nothing wrong. And he knew that Jesus was the king. Look what he says in verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. For someone to have a kingdom, they must be king. Now do you see how that is in direct contrast to all the other responses that we see around the cross All the others questioned Jesus' kingship. End of verse 35, if you are the Christ, if you are God's king in God's world. Verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews. All the others doubted Jesus' identity, but this criminal recognized who Jesus was, that he was the innocent king 
And again, in contrast to all the others, he knew that Jesus could save, verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me. Save me. And so this criminal is held up for us for the way to respond to Jesus so that we don't face judgment, but rather enjoy his salvation. Because look what Jesus promised him. Verse 43, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that remarkable? This man was promised salvation immediately. He was a condemned criminal on a cross, moments away from death. He could do nothing to get himself right with God. Doesn't this teach us a lot? Salvation is not through our religious efforts or our good deeds. We don't get saved by the things we do. He couldn't do anything. It's freely given to us as we turn to Jesus Christ. And when we do that, there's nothing else to do. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. No question he would be instantly with Jesus when he died. Isn't that wonderful? No suggestion of him having to go through anything like purgatory. What a wicked doctrine that is. There's no delay. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Life beyond the grave in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. Do you see what this is teaching? Salvation is given to anyone as soon as they put their trust in Christ. It's given to a criminal. A criminal who could do nothing to earn his salvation. Who had no time to make amends for his past. And so it can be given to you and me. And all we need to do is do what this criminal did. Fear God, acknowledge our sinfulness and trust in Jesus as the innocent king who can save. And then we're free from God's judgment and certain of eternity. And all that is possible because Jesus took the judgment for us. You see, it wouldn't be right for Jesus just to let this man off. And that would be unjust. Now Jesus has to take the punishment in our place And that's what happens as we read verse 44, as we close. It was now the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. The sixth hour was midday. So at the very moment when the sun should have been at its brightest, darkness fell. From noon till 3pm it was dark all over the land. And this took place during the Jewish festival of Passover, a festival that always begins on the first full moon after the spring equinox. So this darkness could not have been a solar eclipse. That only happens during a new moon. So something else was happening here. See, time and again in the Bible, light symbolizes God's favor and darkness represents God's anger and judgment. Something supernatural is happening at the cross and the clear message is God is angry. And we might think, of course God is angry. He's angry that his own beloved son, an innocent son, is being crucified. But that's not it. No, the darkness was telling us that God's anger and God's judgment was falling on Jesus. The innocent king took the punishment that we deserve. That's why salvation is possible. That's why he can forgive the criminal. You can go free. I'll take the punishment. So we've heard the promise of eternal life. We've seen that it's possible because Jesus took the judgment of God upon himself. And in the criminal, we've seen how to be sure of life beyond the grave when we die. 
And so as we've looked this morning at the most significant moment in the history of the world, we come face to face with the most important decision we will ever make. Let me ask you, have you made that decision yet? And if not, can I gently ask you, why not? There are many decisions that affect the rest of your life. This one affects the rest of your life for eternity. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we want to acknowledge before you that had we been there with the crowd, we too will have rejected the Lord Jesus. And we know that because we do it all the time in our lives uh, and we ask your forgiveness. We thank you for this criminal being held up as a, a brilliant example for us of one who recognized who Jesus was, who acknowledged his own sinfulness and who turned in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the glorious response of forgiveness and of eternity spent with you, guaranteed. And so we ask for ourselves and for each one here and others that we know who are not yet Christians, that we might uh, do this very thing, turn afresh, fearing you, fearing the judgment, trusting in Christ alone and knowing the guarantee of eternity because of his death on the cross for us. And we pray that as we do that, it would change our lives dramatically as we live lives of thankfulness and joy. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.